Welcome to the new Fixing Healthcare podcast series, Breaking the Rules. I'm one of your hosts, Jeremy Kaur. I'm also host of the popular New Books of Medicine podcast and CEO at Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert was the CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He is currently a Forbes contributor, a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business, and author of the best-selling book, Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong, and Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients. All profits go to Doctors Without Borders. If you want information on a broad range of healthcare topics, you can visit this website at robertperlmd.com. Our guest today is the New York Times bestselling author and nationally renowned futurist, Ian Morrison. Ian, welcome to season seven of our Fixing Healthcare podcast. Well, it's a delight to be here, Robbie, and I I was on the early days of uh, the original series, so it's a joy to be invited back. This season's theme is Breaking Healthcare's Rules. The premise is that the current American healthcare system is so broken that small tweaks won't be enough and that making real improvement will require breaking its rules. By rules, we don't mean the written ones in textbooks or the ones published by regulators. No, these are the unwritten rules, the norms, expected behaviors, and ways of thinking that doctors learn in medical school and residency and carry with them throughout their professional careers. And as healthcare's leading futurist, I can't wait to hear your thoughts on the outdated rules that we need to jettison. A great place to start would be with your concept of the second curve. What do you mean by that? And why is it important? Well, Robbie, I, you know, been a student of structural change in society now for 50 years. You know, people say, how do you become a futurist? My undergraduate major at Edinburgh University was geographic and economic change in Scotland, 1580 to 1830, which is incredibly useful, but actually is a useful training because in the latter part of the 18th century, you know, Scotland was completely transformed from uh, post-rebellion, you know, post-Bonnie uh, Prince Charlie, if you know your history, um, and, and was completely transformed and, and became the crucible of the Age of Enlightenment. Um, so I've been interested in structural change for a very long time. And when I was at the Institute for the Future, we were working with a lot of clients who were experiencing, and not just in healthcare, in fact, it was more common outside of healthcare, that and, and the, the premise of the second curve was embarrassingly simple. The argument was that most businesses and most industries were going along quite nicely on their first curve, which is the base business. It's the business they know how to operate on a daily basis, but they have a sneaking suspicion in their gut that it's going to decline in either absolute or relative terms. It might not be a, a decline in revenue. It might be growth rates or margin and be replaced by a second curve a new business or a new way of doing business that is radically different from the first. And the dirty little secret of futurism, I think, is you cannot predict the future. You you can think systematically about it. And my old mentor and boss, Roy Amara, taught as well that there's a natural human tendency to overestimate the impact of phenomena in the short run and underestimate it in the long run. 
And, and that really what the second curve is about is to kind of unpack what was driving those fundamental long-term changes uh, and, and what we kind of identified were new technologies like the internet, new consumers who are more skeptical and demanding and new geographic markets globally that were gonna transform the planet. And that kind of rippled through every industry at various rates. And, and so that in essence, Robbie, was the argument for the second curve. You have to be attentive to the old curve uh, going away eventually uh, and the new curve uh, uh, you know, taking over. And, and you had the great Malcolm Gladwell on, I know he's a good friend of yours. I mean, Malcolm really described in the tipping point those inflection points between the two curves. To move from the first to the second curve in, what are a couple of rules that you believe medicine will need to break? Well, I think, you know, the resistance of an industry, you know, because I think the unwritten rule, and I, I love the premise of your series this, this time around, um, I think the unwritten rule is that this is not a profit maximizing industry. It's a revenue maximizing industry. It seems to me almost everyone, and I, I sit through all these board retreats in hospitals, and every single one of them has in their top five, you know, imperatives growth. And guess what? We grow. The revenue keeps going up. And most other countries operate off of what I would call a balloon in the box model, which is instead of trying to have competition or whatever, they, they basically put the health system in a box and they sit on the box, right? It's a top-down control mechanism. And that's what yields, you know, relatively higher performance because it's, it's tamps down the, 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 uh, the total revenue model. And I think the U.S. is sort of addicted to uh, growth. And the other, the other one I would point to is uh, addicted to uh, self-insured employers writing a very big check, massively larger than the actual cost of delivering care. I think those are the two sort of fundamental issues that, that we need to you know, reevaluate. What will stand in the way of change? Well, I, I think incumbency, you know, I, I, I know you teach at Stanford and I, I live, you know, two good three woods away from Stanford. And I, you know, occasionally people will stumble across my resume and call me up some smart Alec MD MBA who's got an idea to disrupt healthcare. And I always say, if you're going to disrupt American healthcare, the, the American healthcare system is larger than the entire Italian economy and about as well organized, right? Um, so if you're going to disrupt healthcare, it's a bit like disrupting Italy. Good luck with that. And, and in fact, it's actually twice the size of, of the Italian economy and it's the fourth or fifth biggest in the world, depending how you measure it. But I think long-winded way of saying, Robbie, that they, the, the thing that prevents us from doing is incumbency, quite frankly. And we have a lot of, of uh, institutions who are on this revenue uh, maintenance track uh, and it's very hard to disrupt that at, at the scale that we currently have invested in the American healthcare system. Not, not that it's all wasteful, but that there is considerable power to that incumbency. I'd like to dive a little deeper into the three themes you talked about in terms of the second curve. Now you talk about customers who won't tolerate inefficiencies and lack of convenience, and yet patients in healthcare, from my perspective, aren't getting anywhere near what they demand in retail, travel, and finance. 
Why? Well, I think that's a very key point. And, and you know, the great Kenneth Arrow economist many, many years ago, 50 odd years ago now, um, wrote about, you know, why healthcare was different. I trained with Bob Evans, the Canadian health economist. And again, he sort of uh, viewed the, the health system very differently than the traditional way of, you know, classic economic theory. And a and the long-winded way of saying that it's a tough industry because of the asymmetry of information. You're a doctor, you know stuff I don't know as a patient. Uh, and, and therefore as a transaction, uh, when I'm purchasing health services or I'm seeking health advice, I really have to rely on your agency to help me get through uh, uh, you know, the difficult times. And that tends to be the experience patients have. Having been a patient not that long ago, um, you know, you cease to be sort of a rational consumer, quote unquote, and become a kind of frightened human um, where you defer to, to expertise. And I think that is a fundamental barrier that exists to actually having a more market-like or consumer responsive health system. But that shouldn't excuse us in healthcare. I think we can do much, much better um, in deploying the kind of tools that we use to get Uber or or uh, DoorDash or, or organized travel. We, we need to use those tools and those analogies in the healthcare system and, and really improve the, the experience overall. Ian, let me go to another area where knowledge asymmetry can't be the answer. You've said that technology needs to be faster, cheaper, and better. And yet when I look at healthcare, it's the only industry that I can see over the past two decades with the introduction of uh, AI and computers and robots have raised costs without any major improvements in quality. How do you explain that? Well, I think it is the healthcare conundrum and, and it actually I think applies to higher education as well, ironically. Um, and if you look at the things that have gone up at price uh, terms, you know, over the last 20 years, hospital prices and college tuition are probably the two outliers compared to stuff like, you know, cheap stuff from China or cell phones or computers. Uh, my new Mac, you know, is probably a hundred times more powerful than the, the Mac I had five years ago. Um, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And it is a conundrum. Um, there's some serious economists like Bill Bomal had, uh, had sort of explained this as the complexity of delivering those services. But I think that's a bit of an excuse. There is no reason why we couldn't radically improve productivity if we, if we knock down some of the barriers of things like scope of practice, um, you know, that you've thought a lot about, Robbie, over the years and, and you know, working in teams with technological support and AI. I think there is tremendous promise in machine learning uh, as a, a support system for clinicians, not to replace doctors necessarily, but to enhance their productivity dramatically. Um, the, some of the other hands-on caregiving things that are tricky. You know, I mean, it, it, it's, it's not going to be easy for, you know, to change diapers and an iPhone. Uh, but, but we can use these tools to, you know, improve productivity and, and increase the sort of responsiveness of the system. Well, again, I'm going to push a little deeper, Ian. Let's look at telemedicine. Simple technology, inexpensive, 
Uh, yes, there were restrictions on payments and restrictions on interstate, but even when all of those things were still uh, not limiting doctors, the use of technology soars to 70% during the pandemic. I'm not hearing a whole lot of negative quality outcomes or problems that exist. And now it's crashed down below 10%, except for mental health services. Why is it so hard to use a modern technology in American healthcare today? Yeah, it's a very important observation. And, and um, I, I kind of said, I, I told you so. I mean, because the, there were early signals even in the pandemic. I mean, my, my good friend, uh, Bob Walker at UCSF said that UCSF did 20 years of innovation in 20 days. Um, and Mayo did, and 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 others. Um, now, you at, at Permanente Medicine had been doing this for fifty years, you know, in, investing in technology, and people did pivot dramatically. But I think what what you saw, if if you put the sort of noble part of the the argument, it, it was that patients actually needed certain things where physical proximity mattered. You know, whether it was I've heard clinicians in certain specialties say. I get way more information by actually seeing the patient and holding, in this case, it was rheumatology, about looking at somebody's fingers and, and, uh, and joints and so forth, get, get way more information than I would over a telehealth visit. But I think part of it goes back to what I said earlier that you know we're in a sort of revenue maximizing mode and revenue comes from doing things to patients beyond just the consultation of a telehealth visit. I, and I would say, Robbie, that that I, my plea and preaching, I'm not a clinician, but I, I have been sort of saying, if all we do is pave the cow path, in other words, substitute an e-visit or telehealth visit for an in-person visit, all we've done is really save travel time and parking, right? Um, what, what, what we really want is productivity enhancers. And I think that requires, as you've done in your career, kind of rethinking end-to-end -end clinical processes to be more digital in their mix. And that's, how, that's easy to say as a futurist, it's hard to do uh, because it really requires rethinking the way in which uh, you know, clinical services are organized and delivered. And I know you've thought deeply about that over the years. And, it, and, and I think it takes clinicians uh, with the right technological support to really redesign uh, those delivery models for the future. I love hearing you say that. I'll be publishing an article next month in the Harvard Business Review talking about five of those opportunities to redirect and recreate new paths rather than, as you say, paving over the cow path. Let me move on to the third piece that you talked about in your discussion about moving from the first to the second curve. You know, you talk about uh, opportunities that come from overseas, from other countries in the world, and yet more than 90% of healthcare is delivered today within 15 miles of a person's house. We have the internet, we have opportunities to learn about expertise available everywhere around the globe, and yet we're so myopic. How do we explain that, and should we change it? Well, I, I think that's an, a very important observation. I mean, I, I was remarking actually at dinner last night, my, my uh, brother-in-law introduced me to Jim Morgan, who ran Applied Materials for many, many years. And, and when I was working on the second Curve book back in the 90s, uh, I interviewed Jim and he said, you know, uh, what I thought was a profound quote, which was that anything that can be made will be made in China, just pointing to 
in the long run, and he was speaking in the early 90s, uh, in the long run, it would be the manufacturing hub for the planet. And similarly, uh, friends of mine at uh, Accenture said, you know, any service that can be delivered over the internet will come from either, uh, you know, the Philippines or Russia or, or uh, India. And, and certainly we've seen that in many, many industries of, you know, if you do battle with Comcast, you're having lovely conversations with people in the Philippines. But the, the short answer, I think, is that somehow healthcare has been immune to globalization uh, and that really has prevented us from opening up sort of, uh, you know, the, the, the kind of enhancement of productivity that we've seen in, in global trade. And I think one of the last thing, I mean, if, if President Biden's speech the other night, the, the one area I would disagree with him on is, you know, buying America is going to be cheaper. I don't think that's true. I think buying American is going to be more expensive. Um, it might be the right thing to do strategically, uh, and, and for our workforce. But David Ricardo, the economist in the 18th century, figured out the comparative advantage of nations. Um, and I actually graduated from Edinburgh 200 years to the day after Adam Smith went there to write The Wealth of Nations. Uh, and we still see each other at alumni meetings. But no, I believe I'm a globalist. I believe in globalization. Um, and I think healthcare has been somewhat immune to it you know, there really isn't, despite your good friend, Dr. Shetty's uh, amazing initiatives, there really is a, a, you know, a limited amount of foreign trade and surgery with Americans going abroad. There's some, you know, to Thailand and so forth, but not a lot compared to, you know, the, the degree to which our other parts of our lives are globalized. You recently wrote a superb and intriguing article, Ian, on the rules of current healthcare entrepreneurs, and you questioned their assumptions and beliefs. Let me ask you about a few of them and see whether these are rules that will happen or changes that will happen in the rules or whether we'll stay with the old ones. The first one was you said that value-based care is inevitable, by which you mean a shift from fee-for-service to some variant of a pay-for-value type approach. Is this a rule that's going to happen? or one that's going to be uh, blocked? Well, I, in the article, what I pointed to was the recurrence of these themes and these assumptions, if you like, which I was urging the readers to challenge because look, and, and you know, we go back a long way. I mean, I've been preaching and proselytizing about value-based payment for 30 odd years, um, and yet I'm, quite disappointed quite frankly in in you know what what uh, some people are calling you know value-based care is on a path to nowhere if you actually look at the prevalence of capitation in our hospital system it's it, minuscule um, and and recent articles demonstrating that amongst physicians both specialists and primary care the there was inadequate you know and, and relatively low percentages of physicians who were receiving substantial care. And look, you've dedicated your career to advancing the notion of prepaid group practice as a building block. And I completely agree with that. But, you know, we, we if you look across the country, most markets don't have um, those fully integrated end-to-end prepaid systems. And I think there's a resistance still in the value movement uh, or to the value movement because of the addiction that we started with of of you know a revenue maximizing industry whose 
looking to employer-based sponsored commercial health insurance rates to sustain those revenue targets. Another one you've talked about is the assumption. I like to think about as a rule by which I mean it is something that will happen, uh, that the pandemic effect on digital health is massive and will be permanent. Will it or will it not? Well, I think we, as we've discussed, you know, the, the evidence on the ground is that we, we did make a pivot. It was massive, but it was relatively short term. And we've adjusted to kind of a new normal. And that's why I think the work you're going to do, share in the Harvard Business Review is so important that we, we can't lose momentum and just revert back. We, we you know, as, as you well know, patients uh, see value in this and we've got to just get better at using those digital tools going forward to transform our care processes. So I think we, we absolutely need to learn the lessons, but I, I did feel in, in my kind of assessment of the emerging facts on the ground that we weren't gonna be at that 70% level of substitution forever. How about the idea that primary care and prevention will eliminate tertiary care? Yeah, and again, uh, you, you know, I, I, I think about your experience at Kaiser, certainly the experience around the world where more investment, relatively speaking, in primary care and prevention yields uh, what I believe is a more efficient and an equitable system. Um, but it isn't, you can't substitute everything and not everything is preventable. And I actually would point to the evidence of, of Kaiser Permanente has done more than any other organization on the planet to you know, reach out and be focused on primary care and prevention. And yet you still, uh, within the Kaiser Permanente system, have hospitals and acute care that doesn't, it, it, you know, it doesn't banish disease, uh, is, is I guess my point. And there will still be residual amounts of, of care delivered, um, even though better investment in primary care and prevention as a rule would yield uh, a higher performing health system. When it comes to a, the fourth one, I'd like to modify what you said a little bit and again, phrase it more as a question. Technology, is it a force for good or is it a force for evil? Well, I, you know, my doctoral dissertation actually was a kind of an assault on technological determinism. And my view has always been that technology is neutral. It doesn't have a point of view. It's an amplifier. It's a tool. Um, and it can be used for good and it can be used for evil. And it could be used, in my case, I was an uh, urban studies uh, major, uh, a doctoral uh, uh, degree. And what I was arguing is that it doesn't inevitably lead to either centralization or decentralization. It depends what the people who have the power and use the technology want to do with it. And so I still believe that to be the case. But don't get me wrong. I think that if you look at where the productivity enhancement exists and the potential exists, it has to be going back to Moore's law and the circuits per chip and the power of these machines getting greater every year uh, and the rise of machine learning and artificial intelligence. Um, we've got to get it right and we've got to use those tools intelligently. But it's the bright spot and we shouldn't ignore it. We should embrace it 
uh, and do it right. Um, uh, and 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 I think that's the challenge of the next five years is to really bring the best thinking and the best tools to bear uh, for patients and for, and for uh, uh, caregivers uh, so that we, we have a higher performing health system. So Ian, the average middle-class person in America feels very downtrodden right now. COVID-19, inflation, the mental health crisis, the shrinking uh, middle-class. One of the most difficult things the average American faces, and it feels like it's been treated as an afterthought uh, recently, is the increasing costs of healthcare. People pay more and more in premiums for healthcare every year for plans they can't even afford to use. Their deductible is more than they can actually afford to pay. Uh, this causes many to avoid care until it's too late. Uh, most Americans have lost hope in both political parties and the healthcare system as a whole as being able to create any real innovation that will make amazing healthcare available and affordable to the average citizen that is, you know, terrified to use the healthcare they have. Do you have a realistic roadmap to address these issues and a message of hope for these average American citizens who are afraid to use the care they have? Well, Jeremy, I think you're, you're hitting the nail on the head. I mean, if there is <clears throat> one mega trend over the last 40 years, it's been the progressive unaffordability for consumers. You know, I was on the board of the California Healthcare Foundation, and we did a study 20 years ago now, I think, where we basically identified that in 1970, if you provided health benefits to a family, um, it, it cost about 10% of the minimum wage. Uh, today, it's 150% of the minimum wage. Uh, and as you correctly point out, what that leads to in terms of behavior, particularly with the rise of high deductible health plans, has been people foregoing care. And about a third of Americans claim they do that. And, and it was exacerbated through the pandemic. Um, so your question really is, is there hope for consumers going forward? I think you know, the Biden administration has certainly, in terms of its stopgap measures through the American Rescue Plan, has provided uh, some kind of insulation from those costs through, uh, you know, the rule changes and, and payment changes for Medicaid and so forth that were short term, whether they can be made more permanent. But really, you know, all of that, including the whole Obamacare apparatus, was really to paper over uh, from the consumer perspective, the underlying problem, which is that the actual cost of services is going up. And you can you can insulate consumers by giving them more subsidy, but is that really the long-term answer? I think the long-term answer of affordability is change the way we do what we do, um, which is what you and Robbie, I think, are trying to do with this series, is to draw attention that to fix healthcare, you've got to actually fix the care delivery process. Uh, going forward, and they're just simply throwing more money at the existing infrastructure isn't the right solution. Two last questions. Will Alexa and Siri be the next generation of doctors? Well, you know, I think that we will increasingly have machine learning as a starting point of interacting with the health system. I think we're seeing this in behavioral health because with this, the shortage of behavioral health workers and, and clinicians is so dire and the needs are so massive that these technological solutions are becoming prevalent as our first line of, of uh, uh, care for mental health issues. So I think yes is the short answer to your question. 
um, that we will see LX and Syria as our first line of defense, which speaks to me to, to uh, the very great importance of evaluating these technologies carefully with regard to efficacy and effectiveness and be rigorous in, you know, if, if, if it's a chatbot service, let's put the chatbots in a double-blind randomized trial. Uh, and, and as some of the the, the leaders in the, the behavioral health space have done. So I, I do think there is an opportunity there and I am excited to see some of these uh, early stage companies come to uh, full scale and see how much improvement in performance we can have. But as I, I said, as having been a patient, people are still gonna get sick and they're gonna want that laying on of hands by experts and looking in the eye of the clinician who's uh, going to open your belly or whatever the the uh, uh, intervention is, and and I do think we've got to honor both sides of this. It's not going to be all about the disruptors uh, eliminating the incumbents. It's about the incumbents also uh, uh, being honored for the work they do, and and let's help them with these new tools. As you said, you published the second curve. In the late 1990s, we're a quarter of a century later. How close are we now to being on that second curve? And if we're not yet there, when will it happen? You know, it's it's absolutely true because I, I went back and looked at the, the healthcare chapter then, and I was, even though praising all the things you and I believe of prepaid group practice and integration and so forth, um, I, I, I sort of reluctantly concluded then that we were on a kind of phantom second curve. We, we had all the PowerPoint slides. We just didn't do it. Right. And, and unfortunately I think that was accurate. Um, and, and in the back half of the chapter of what a true second curve would look like, um, you know, I, I, I still believe that's the agenda. It's, it's more attention to social investment and the social determinants of health. It's using technology more creatively. It's targeting uh, care delivery to to uh, deliver the most value by honoring primary care or specialty, um, and and it's leveraging the technologies we've been talking about more effectively. That still remains our challenge, I think, going forward. Um, and I just think we need to galvanize our leaders, and and the work you do is so incredibly important, Robbie, because what you're doing, I think, is trying to lead the market forward to uh, find better solutions that, that honor those principles and, and actually deliver healthcare services that are higher quality uh, and, and lower cost. And that, that still remains the conundrum we've got to solve for. Ian, I could listen to you all day, the combination of your intelligence and your wit. Thank you so much for being our guest on season seven of Fixing Healthcare. It was my pleasure and honor. Good luck with the series. Robbie, what do you think about what Ian said? Jeremy, I love Ian's model of the second curve. The truth is that American healthcare isn't on it yet. I believe there are both systemic and cultural reasons that this is the case. As an example, people don't receive the same level of service as they demand in other areas of their life because the culture of medicine says the patient's time isn't important and the majority of people are fearful of questioning their doctors. Technology lags because physicians resist embracing new technology like AI, fearing that adhering to an algorithm rather than using their intuition will reduce the status of the physician profession. 
and healthcare isn't global because doctors are convinced that American healthcare is the best in the world despite overwhelming data to the contrary. Until both systemic and cultural change happen, the United States will continue to spend double what other countries do per person on medical care and get quality outcomes that lag the other 12 most industrialized nations in the world. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and we'll share it with your friends and colleagues. Please follow Fixing Healthcare on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. Visit our website at fixinghealthcarepodcast.com and follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Fixing HC Podcast. Thank you for listening and have a great day.